The message of the gospel is about the rule and reign of God being proclaimed in the world. We call this the kingdom of God. And we've explored how uh, Christ uh, gave his disciples commissions that would help them to discover their calling and their, the various ways in which the whole body of Christ brings the whole, tr- and the whole church, brings the whole gospel to the whole world. And we saw in the book of Acts that this was not easy. Um, it's not easy at all because it's much easier to proclaim the gospel within your own context. The minute you're asked to cross boundaries, as we now learn, 27,000 of them, essentially the number of people groups in the world, this becomes an exceedingly challenging task. It involves language, so- social challenges, involves ethnic issues. Um, working in India, I grew up in Georgia. I never, I didn't know a single word of Hindi. I, did, I didn't know uh, so many things uh, about Indian culture, people, how they thought about things. It's not just language. I wish it was just language. It's so much more than that. It's everything, how people think and perceive things, etc. Um, and so the church has always had this challenge. This is not a new problem at all. And we saw that in the book of Acts. So what we discovered in the, uh, you know, in the, as history has developed, that <clears throat> they, the church learned early on that words conveyed meaning. So, for example, for John the Baptist to say, as he did in the, in the Gospels, he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come, take away the sins of the world. Now, that is a powerful gospel statement, but it's a highly contextualized one. Because, it, in other words, it's a statement that would make sense to a Jewish audience who understands the sacrificial system and the role of lambs and the use of lambs to bring cleansing of sin, et cetera, et cetera. If you're a Greek person and someone says that, Jesus, hey, let me tell you something. He's awesome. He's the Lamb of God. Okay, that is like, whoo, means nothing to them. So the church, that's why Paul, we saw in Acts, that Paul says, I'm going to say kurios, I'm going to say Lord rather than Messiah. Uh, Jesus is both. But, you know, how do you communicate this? It's been a big challenge. So when the church um, got into this, it very early on becomes messy. This becomes difficult. To this day, we fight about this, and that's good. These are good fights, but they're fights. They're genuine fights. You know, what's too much? What's allowable? What's not allowable? All these things happen. So from the early on, there were really three, you know, solutions that the church tried to portray, or at least came up. One I call the Ebionite solution. There was a group of Ebionites who said, point blank, you got it all wrong. This Messiah, we love Jesus, but he is for us. He was our Messiah, and this is not meant to be brought out to anybody else. So this is like, this is a closed door. door. So they're obviously not going to accept the Great Commission, all of that. And the Ebionite solution is that it's just too dangerous. It's just, you know, we can't communicate this across cultural lines. Uh, the church, of course, said no to that. Uh, the second solution we call the Judaizer solution, and this is what is particularly fought about during the uh, Acts 15 uh, passage on the, the Jerusalem Council. There's some councils, like the first formal church fight. <laughs> All right? The church has, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's again, it's a healthy fight. Uh, conflict is good in any organizational life. If you can't have conflict and people express themselves, then it's not a healthy, healthy organization. So conflict is not bad. You just want to have healthy conflict. This is healthy conflict. 
People were speaking from genuine heart. Wait a minute. You know, um, we want to know what are the means or the terms in which a Gentile can come into the church. And by the way, the book of Acts 15 is not actually de debating the Ebionite problem. The, there was nobody in the whole Jerusalem council that said Gentiles shouldn't come in the church. That is not the debate. They all believe that Gentiles should come in the church. The debate was over the means by which they came into the church. So the Judaizer solution was, yes, the, Jew, the Gentiles are welcome, but they must come through our doorway. They must come through the Jewish doorway. They must be circumcised. They must submit to the law, the Old Testament law, because that's what it means to be a follower of God. I mean, if you're a Jew, you can't just say, well, circumcision, forget that. No, they were commanded to circumcise. That was the sign of the covenant. They couldn't say, well, you know, the law of God's meaningless. No, they, they were defined by the law of God. How could someone not accept these things? I mean, to them, it was like unthinkable. So it was a serious conversation, a lot of things back and forth about it. And um, what eventually emerged by the help of the Holy Spirit was what today we call the multicultural solution. And in fact, the gospel would be at home in different cultural situations and you did not have to pass through the cultural door of Judaism to get into, or the religious world of Judaism, to get into Christianity. This means that a Greek who knew nothing about the Old Testament, who knew nothing about Jewish covenants, who was not circumcised, who never heard of the law of God, um, could become a Christian. Now, this does not mean, just to be clear, that the Christians were or the multicultural solution meant that there was no ethical boundary to the church, because occasionally you get this today. This is not at all. They're, Jesus' whole point was a much deeper ethic. And people who think, you, know, you often get the idea the Old Testament was like harsh and cruel and demanding, exacting. New Testament's like wonderful and like embracing and loving and all this. But in fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said of old, not kind of adultery. I said, you don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. Is that easier? Uh, but ultimately, do not murder. I'm saying don't even get angry without causing your heart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a deeping of the ethic of the, of the Bible that makes powerful. The point, though, Paul's point, of course, later would be if you have Jesus in your heart and you love Jesus, you don't need the law because you, you're, you've transcended the law. Not that the law is, is, is thrown away. You're just have, you, you live into an even deeper way. So they had to go work through all of this. So this becomes what today we call the multicultural solution. And so a Greek or a, someone from Papua New Guinea or from North India or Tanzania, wherever, can come directly to the gospel without passing through somebody else's cultural door. Now, the problem, though, is that we come bringing the gospel through cultural frame. And so the church has had to decide, well, how does this happen? How does this work? And a number of things were uh, developed. Uh, the uh, earliest term, if you want to use the term, uh, the term expression, was uh, actually developed by the Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages, 16th, 18th century. They developed a term called accommodation. Now, accommodation was the first like formal term to describe this in the like, modern missiology where it's okay, we are going to accommodate to certain things in Japanese culture, Chinese culture, Indian culture that we don't believe uh, is, a, is a, you know, like reprehensible to the gospel. And there are people who basically said, you know, 
unless the gospel prohibits it, then don't, don't worry about it. Others like, no, unless the gospel, you know, command, commends it, we shouldn't allow it. You know, there's people have different ideas about it, but they definitely had what's called accommodation. So Robert Nobly, for example, uh, adopts what he calls an accommodation to India. He wants to reach the high caste Brahmins. So what does uh, Dinobili do? He goes to India in 1605. He dresses like a Brahmin. That means he wears the, 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 the white saffron, the, or the, the saffron um, uh, cloak robes. He, he wears uh, sandalwood. You know, he won't wear any normal uh, leather, no leather. He eats vegetables. You know, he follows the, the, the kind of Hindu world in order to reach them. And they had a big debate about this. The Roman Catholic Church <coughs> fought over whether this was a good idea or not. You have uh, uh, Matteo Ricci in China. And there's, this, uh, there's no end to this. And the Roman Catholics were the first group to really, really press these points and determine. Like, for example, the rights controversy. You know, uh, people would, uh, it was a approach to bow to your ancestors. Is bowing an act of worship or is it honoring your mother and your father? The Bible commands us to honor mother and father, but we don't generally do it by bowing. What does bowing mean in that culture? Is bowing permissible? Um, they, they used to, they one time had the, the, ta- they, the Jesuits put the tablet of their, your ancestors' names on it and put above it, Jesus is Lord, to say that, you know, of course you honor your parents, but Jesus is Lord. You know, they, to, to accommodate bowing before your ancestors. Others said, no, 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 you, you can't bow before your ancestors. That's an act of worship. These are all these things. And Roman Catholics have a whole history of these conversations. And we can learn a lot from those conversations because they discussed it for hundreds of years. And the Jesuits mostly led that conversation. Later, uh, the word accommodation was abandoned and the Roman Catholics themselves actually were going to use the word enculturation. And enculturation began to focus on the recipients. Like the others, like, what are we going to do? You know, what are we willing to do? This was like what they are adapting, how they are adapting the whole thing uh, within the culture itself. There, there's an anthropology word called enculturation, E-N. This is I-enculturation. This was a new word invented describe what happens when the gospel comes into a culture, enculturation. And so that became an emphasis on the target culture and asking them, well, you know, okay, now that you're a Christian, what do you think is offensive to the gospel? What do you think is okay? And we've used this a lot in India. We, we find that a lot of things that we think are like no big deal. They're like, no, this is a really big deal. And there's things that we think, you know, is, uh, or a big deal. Like, no, no, it's not a big deal. So, you know, this is like a conversation, okay? How can we learn from the church and they themselves can help us to know where these lines might be drawn? Later, uh, a word developed, which is still used this day, called indigenization. And indigenization was a term borrowed from sociology, uh, came in in the seven, early 70s a lot, to talk about, um, you know, how we, like kind of the goal is to see if the church really is... Um, uh, resonating with the culture. You know, does the, does the church, is it indigenous? Is it a church that has marks like self-propagating, you know, self-governing, you know, self-supporting? Th- things like this were, were like signs of a church being truly indigenous. Again, some churches mistakenly thought, well, if you have a, a local pastor, if, if you're like we've done in Brazil working and you have a Portuguese pastor from Brazil, that, that's an indigenous church. I was like, well, no, is that the only thing? Maybe there's other things. What if, what if you're still singing from hymn books and you're building churches with stained glass windows? You know, wh- where does it stop? Where, where do you, what is indigenous? This is a big conversation. What does it mean to kind of embody the culture? All these things um, happen. These terms are still used to this day. 